Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 305 of the Fun with Cars, Formula One, and other motorsports podcast, or episode 39 of 2021. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who just wrote a sternly worded letter to the Turkish Department of Rain, Christopher Roche. Hey, Chris. Hey, Robin. How'd that letter go? Do you feel like you're going to get a good response from the Rain Department? Um, well, you know, it could have been heavier. <laughs> what is it with Turkey um, and Formula One these days? It's always wet Turkey. I don't know about you. I don't really like wet Turkey. Yeah, I, I mean, basted. Basted, that's great. But there's a key difference between basted and just rain, isn't there? At least the track was a bit more grippy this, this year than, than last. But uh, but yeah, it was a dismal old weekend for the, certainly uh, the teams and the fans that uh, were present. It is Tuesday morning, October 12th, and Chris and I are getting ahead of ourselves as we talk about the Turkish Grand Prix. But there is some news to talk about, and first and foremost, it is that Sergio Perez was correct in his news from last week that it was time for get him for him to get on the podium. Good for him. That's not really news, is it? Um, no, it was re- news. We read it last week. Of course it was news. It was right there. <laughs> so why doesn't he boldly predict... Uh, Six more Grand Prix wins for the remainder of the season. Let's go for that. That that would well, be news. I, th- I I don't know what to say other than he that was what was in the news, and because it was in the news, so it shall be. But anyway, is there any other news to talk about before we talk in more detail about this Turkish Grand Prix? There is some pretty interesting news, actually, especially for fans of the sport from this side of the Atlantic. So... Um, Obviously, Sauber F1, which goes under the radar a bit these days, uh, as it's branded Alfa Romeo, um, is apparently having talks with none other than Michael Andretti. Uh, The the talks are going to intensify over the weekend of the US Grand Prix coming up here in Austin, Texas. But uh, apparently the rumours are that Andretti is interested in buying up to an 80% share in the holding company that owns Sauber. And the plot 80% of majority stake. And wow. uh, the fascinating thing about this is that Gamebridge, who's one of the sponsors of uh, Andretti's cars in IndyCar, yeah, is involved. And they are interested in bringing Mr. Herter to Formula One as part of this deal. <laughs> <laughs> so Mario Andretti's little quip from a few months ago may have more teeth than we initially thought, eh? Yeah, I mean, what what an exciting prospect that would be. So we'd, we'd have Botas, so a pretty good yardstick, lots of experience. We'd have, uh, you know, an exciting young American driver in the sport, uh, some fresh investments, some fresh ideas uh, into the team. Because Sauber haven't had the greatest run of success of late, have they? And they're bumping along with seven championship points in 2021. So uh, this would uh, this would be pretty pretty cool, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there are just a whole myriad of jokes that I think about with Michael Andretti in Formula One um, coming to mind right now. But uh, yeah, that's interesting because Peter Sauber, I think it was 2016 or 2018 that he kind of took a step back and uh, became part of this holding company as opposed to just being the owner himself. And uh, Alfa Romeo seemed to have reasonably high interest in keeping this going as is. But if Michael Andretti gets involved, well, that could just shake everything up. Well, Alfa Romeo is a glorified sponsor, let's not forget. Um, You know, Sauber has a deal with Ferrari to run engines and gearboxes and some other technical support. But... You know, essentially Alfa Romeo is the, the old title sponsor as it used to be known. Um, so rather than being branded as Alfa Romeo Sauber, they just dropped the, the Sauber team name um, to give them a bit more uh, visibility. But I don't know if that money and that branding would necessarily change. I know a deal was recent, recently signed to keep them on as the lead sort of sponsor of the team. And I would have thought that Andretti might want to continue that, uh, at least in the short term. It seems like it's far from a done deal, although um, Andretti's been been interested for a while, apparently, and has talked to other teams. 
and does seem genuinely interested in, in some sort of deal. It does seem like the Sauber holding company has other options. And we talked a little bit about the second driver and who's in the frame for that. And this, this guy, Zhao, who's uh, second in the GP2 championship, I guess, could unlock quite a lot of money for the team as well. So they have a couple of options, and I'm sure if they're looking to sell, there'll be other interested parties. So it's, um, it's going to be interesting to see how things develop over the next uh, couple of weeks here. But, uh, but certainly an exciting prospect. It would be good to have a fresh injection of ideas. And, and really, you know, with, with Haas uh, slowly transforming into a Russian Grand Prix team, we do need a bit more American interest, I think, in the sport from a, from a team and driver perspective particularly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I would I would think that Colton would have real potential. I mean, he's certainly young enough. He's shown real speed in IndyCar and seems like uh if things were to fall in the right places, that that could be a good marriage. Well, I certainly would put a lot of money on a bet that he would finish higher than Nikita Mazepan more often than not, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'd hope you'd put at least a little bit of money on me finishing higher than Nikita Mazepin at least some of the time. Well, well, I mean, I did drive myself to work after all when we worked together. So I, I think that gives me more experience than he has in some regards. So that's all, I'm being uh, all the detail. I'm being harsh. That's that's not fair. That's not fair to him. He was a he was a GP two driver. He, you know, he's he's a plenty good racer. We're just uh, you know he's just a, a very opportune foil at times. I guess is the best way to say it. Yeah. So I don't have too much more to share on that. We'll obviously be monitoring developments, and we'll bring you more news as it uh, as it develops. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as I sip my hot tea with milk, I am fascinated and interested and ready to talk about the Turkish Grand Prix and the British driver that everyone's keeping their eye on at the Turkish Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton, whom we learned early on in the weekend was going to take an engine penalty, a 10-place engine penalty for swapping internal combustion engines. So we already knew that the best possible place that Lewis Hamilton could start was 11th. And uh, yeah, then we saw the weekend unfold. What what did you make of Friday and Saturday at Turkey? Yeah, you're right. He, he was, uh, wasn't the only one to take a penalty. Uh, Carlos Sainz also took a penalty um, for a more extensive power unit swap. Um, so it's clear that the majority of the teams and drivers are not going to get through the season on just the allocated three. Um, so some of the drivers are trying to get the, the pool expanded uh, before we get into the really sharp end of the season. Um, obviously, we had dry running on Friday and it became clear that Mercedes had a decent pace advantage over Red Bull. Red Bull seemed to be in some trouble. I don't know if it was because they painted their car white for the weekend and uh, it doesn't, the aero doesn't work quite so well. <laughs> We were but, supposed to be in Japan this weekend, and it was a tribute to Honda and uh, Honda's white racing cars. That was the purpose of the paint. Maybe it was really heavy. Who knows? Uh, I mean, it was a nice idea. My my son wasn't a fan. He was like, ooh, what's that car? And, uh, yeah, he's looking forward to the uh, return to the dark blue. But, um, yeah, nice tribute to Honda, justifiably so. But uh, didn't make the cars very quick. They certainly were having... Trouble with the handling on Friday, and um, Mercedes seemed to have uh, a good situation, which may have inspired Hamilton and his team to to take the, uh, the grid penalty, um, get it out of the way. Um, qualifying was was damp to drying, um, quite tricky, and we ended up with a Mercedes lockout with Hamilton scoring his 102nd pole position. Oh no, wait, he doesn't actually get to record the pole position. That goes to Valtteri Bottas for coming second. One of those. He scored his 102nd interview after Saturday <laughs> qualifying, maybe? Was it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where, yeah, maybe that's how that we should ball? track it now. Um, yeah, I don't understand that rule, but he doesn't get he doesn't get attributed with the pole position because he didn't start on pole on Sunday. But anyway, he was a um, good three tenths up on Verstappen um, in, in Q3. So definitely he had a decent, decent margin over Max and the Red Bulls. 
Um, the other highlights, I think, from qualifying were the, the, was the pace of both Charles Leclerc and, and uh, Pierre Gasly, who, well, and Fernando Alonso, who managed to get uh, fourth, fifth and sixth on the grid, really throwing out the McLaren form book because poor old Norris was down in eighth. So those, those uh, well, drivers... Well, Ricardo and... was just having a, a, oh, yeah. just another dreadful weekend. Disaster for Danny. Dreadful but, uh, Saturday, I suppose I should say. It was a pretty dreadful Sunday as well, I think. But, um, yeah, but yeah. we're not there yet. That's okay. A, that's a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shh, don't, don't tell him. Um, so, yeah, the midfield battle, you know, continues to take its twist and turns. And, and it, this weekend it was uh, Ferrari, uh, Ferrari's turn to have more pace. Um, then uh, Perez did his, his normal underachievement on Saturday down in seventh. Um, other highlights was Mick Schumacher making it into Q2, uh, lining up 14th. Not bad. Not bad at all. Yeah. Mazapan was still 20th, so Mick, Mick found some, some extra speed. Still behind George Russell, of course, in 13th, but, but pretty good, actually, for Mick. That's sort of, I think, what we were hoping to see. Um, being mired down in 19th, con- constantly just beating Nikita is not enough to really get him a better drive for the future. He needs to, he needs to drag that car to higher up the grid. So that's, that's more what people are expecting him to be able to achieve. Obviously, we know the Haas is a pretty poor car this season. It's not being developed, but even so, you've got to, you've got to take, uh, you've got to take a chance, haven't you? And, um, he certainly delivered in Turkey. I, he has a reputation for coming good in the second half of championships. I don't know if that's what happened this weekend, but certainly it's signs of life that he might, uh, might be uh, able to have a good run in, in, in the rest of the 21 season. Yeah, second half of championships and also uh, second season. I, I think it was both F3 and F2 where he had a rookie season. Then the second year, he went on to do quite well and win the championship. So that was definitely the case in F2. Uh, I, I thought that was F3 as well for Mick. Yeah, so there weren't too many other surprises in the um, in qualifying. Should we turn to the race? Well, yeah, the race, race came and it was not dry it turned out to be a soggy weekend as a whole i think initially they thought that sunday would be drier but uh, alas i believe every single car started on intermediates for the race and uh, it became this really interesting gamble of how wet is the track is it going to get wetter is it going to get drier if so how quickly and that made the turkish grand prix for 2021 extremely fascinating in terms of a race strategy call and that uh, that played a great uh, part of adding interest in the early front but the other part that was great was seeing just how aggressive and successful both Hamilton and Carlos Sainz were being at getting their cars through the field especially Carlos Sainz early on yeah so you're right it was wet throughout the race a dry line never really formed well enough to, to allow slicks. Only Vettel tried slicks, which was a disaster. Oh man, so, that was that was, <laughs> it was so painfully bad. Yeah. Um, so because no one was running on slicks, we never had DRS. So DRS was not active throughout the race. So it was good old fashioned, you know, passing on merit. Um, and you're right. I mean, Carlos from his 19th grid spot and Lewis from his 11th uh, both made you know, good progress. Um, you know, Lewis got up to uh, fifth place um, fairly quickly, actually. He had some trouble getting past Yuki Sonoda. To yeah, Sonoda made his car wide. Sonoda was doing a good job. But he got up to fifth, um, you know, I think fairly early. It was like in the early 20s, wasn't it, the number of laps, um, and uh, was able to catch up behind Perez. So at that point, you know, only Bottas, Verstappen, Leclerc, Perez were ahead of him. Uh, so obviously it's it's tougher going at that point, but uh, it still looked like Hamilton might have a chance to get on the podium. And at that stage, no one had pitted. So everyone was still running on their first set of inters that they'd started the race on. So it looked like it was all to play for. Um, and, um, you know, it was, we then got into this interesting situation where uh, Verstappen started um, around a pit stop lap 36, where he came in for new intermediates. Um, and Perez and Botas came on in on the following lap, lap 37. So those guys were all running fresh inters. 
uh, Verstappen was able to come out still ahead of Hamilton. Um, but then we we had uh, Leclerc and Hamilton decide to try and stick it out on the on the uh, used inters that they'd started the race on, and it was, you know, a question of whether or not there might be a safety car or the track would dry enough to allow slicks, or you know maybe it would get wetter and, and require full full wet tires. So they basically were trying to keep their options open, and and you know there was some speculation that they might try and complete the race on their one set of intermediates. Um, but once Botas uh, got through the graining phase on his tyres, he was able to, to catch and pass Leclerc, who at that point had been leading the race, uh, fairly easily. And so he then dived in and got fresh inters on lap 47. And so everyone's attention turned to Hamilton, of course, who was running in third place at this point um, and was about 10 seconds ahead of Perez. Uh, and at that stage, Perez wasn't closing on him that quickly. So it looked like... You know, well, it, it was be, hit and miss. Sometimes, sometimes it was a second a lap, but then other times it it, it wasn't there at all. It, it, so yeah. it, it, there wasn't like an assisting, a consistent grinding away at the at the uh, deficit that Perez was pulling. So yeah, it was it was uh, noisy data you could say from Perez. Yeah, so then we had this debate between Hamilton and his pit wall as to whether he should come in or not, and um, eventually he went in and. For whatever reason, he, he didn't realise he was going to lose two places by by changing tyres, which, you know, I think pretty much anyone could have told him that was going to be the case. And so he comes out behind both Perez and Leclerc now back in fifth place on new inters that then weren't very weren't very good as he went through the graining phase that everyone else had done 10, 15 laps earlier and was struggling to keep uh, Gasly behind him. So, yeah, it was um, it, it sort of sort of petered out his efforts to get up the order and and uh and was a bit disappointing i mean you know it was fun while it lasted the battle between hamilton and perez before their pit stops was really really good i thought that was really good value went on for half a lap didn't it and uh they gave each other space um they uh they didn't touch once and perez was able to successfully hold hamilton back which i think was key to helping him finish on the podium and to, to keep uh, Verstappen's points haul um, as good as it ended up being. So some good driving from Perez at that stage of the race. But frustration for Hamilton and frustration for Mercedes in terms of what the right strategy really should have been, I think. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So um, actually, I, I think you made a lot of good points and uh, I want to take all those points and ignore them for a few minutes because <laughs> um, to me it was really fascinating how this whole race played out because Ricardo, Daniel Ricardo, kind of became the canary in a coal mine. He was the first one to pit. He pitted on lap 21. And there was definitely, there was a radio message where he said, oh yeah, a new set of enters would help me out a lot. And that proved quite just plainly false, it seemed. He... He was struggling a little bit, got in, got the new winters, fell to 18th, and for a long time couldn't improve from there. And it, it really started looking bad. And then eventually over time he was able to start gaining some ground. But I think that Ricardo kind of became a cautionary tale for a lot of people that a, a new set of winters isn't necessarily going to uh, gain you any real speed and... That compounded with what you were saying. It was really uh, unknown whether the track was going to get drier and a dry line was going to develop and start asking for slick tires from the cars or if more rain might even be coming because it was like kind of like this like light mist in and out the entire time. So it was really wreaking havoc on any kind of consistent strategy for when is the best time to pit and what you're going to gain from that pit stop just because you said there's that graining phase that a lot of drivers were going through and um, all those different types of things. The other part of it, the the kind of, as you mentioned, the, the real pit strategy was really set off with Max Verstappen and Carlos Sainz. They pitted on lap 36, and um, Lewis Hamilton didn't end up pitting until lap 50. And for me, there was a whole lot of history repeating itself from Lando Norris, and his back and forth with his team about whether he should pit or not, I felt like Lewis Hamilton was falling into a similar 
a similar pattern here where the team was saying, hey, you should pit. And Hamilton's like, no, 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 I want to stay out. And there was almost this 14-lap debate going on as all this racing was ha- happening on the track. So what did you make of laps between laps 36 and 50 when the leaders first started coming in for pits and when Hamilton finally started to pit and they were kind of having an argument uh, or a discussion back and forth for those several laps? Yeah, I mean, at the time, I was thinking that Hamilton should was in the right and should persevere um, on on his one set of inters and try and make it to the end. I thought he and Charles both should have done that, actually. What, you know, some drivers were able to complete the race on one set of inters, and uh, Ocon was the highest-placed driver to do that. He finished in 10th. Um, the, the, there are some great photographs of, of canvas on his front right tyre at the end of the race, but he did make it. Now, he did so not lose... just... Real quick, let's describe that. Not just... Not just a slick tire of rubber, but even gone through all the rubber and some of the uh, some of the canvas, some of the webbing underneath the tire, some of the structure of the tire was showing. Exactly, exactly. And he he got passed by Lance Stroll um, toward the end of the race, and in five laps, Stroll was able to pull seventeen seconds on him. So Stroll being on, you know, a, a newer set of inters versus Ocon's, you know, whole race set of inters. So clearly there was going to be some significant dig towards the end of the Grand Prix and you would expect that both Leclerc and, and Hamilton would have been subject to that. But what frustrated me is that Mercedes essentially, especially with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that Mercedes were completely wrong in, in their strategy. If you're, going to, if you're going to try and run one set of tyres for the whole race, then commit to it. But what they ended up doing was the worst of both worlds. They didn't commit to just running the one set throughout the race and take the pain at the end with with whatever level of degradation they endured. But they then also didn't stop at the time where it made sense to do so around the, you know, the the bottom half of the the 30 odd laps. So 30 to 36 to 40 laps is what I mean by that. So when when Bottas pitted on lap 37, as an example. Exactly. So if they pitted in the late 30s with everyone else, they would have gone through the graining phase with everyone else. And then you would have had a straight fight, well, because Leclerc, if he'd stayed out, would have been eliminated. So you would have then had a straight fight between Perez and Hamilton for the third place uh, on the podium. And you'd have probably backed Hamilton to get it done sooner or later, especially with the pace advantage Mercedes had um, that weekend. So if they just followed everybody else into the pits at the same time and run like a normal sort of tyre deg, um, race, then they would have, they probably would have got a podium and minimized the damage to, to Verstappen. Instead, they tried an alternative strategy to give themselves more options and then backed out of that strategy and, and ended up sort of in, in, in you know, a, a non-optimal, a pretty poor result as a, uh, you know, as a consequence. And it's a shame. And I think, um, I think Hamilton certainly would have been happier if he just committed and then, you know, even if he'd finished fifth, at least he would have had a crack at it uh, and felt good about it. Whereas the swap to tyres just left him really struggling for any sort of pace. He wasn't able to attack. He was having to defend and really just an unsatisfactory end to his Grand Prix. So do you think that, you know, obviously we have the benefit of hindsight here, but do you think benefit, do you think Mercedes should have been more forceful in their language about Hamilton pitting? closer to those late 30 late you know lap of the late 30s or so because they were telling him to come in and he was saying no I don't want to come in I want to stay out there's no reason to come in he was basically saying the tires feel fine right now why why fix something that isn't broken I think was the gist of what Hamilton was getting at and what you know should have Mercedes said no Hamilton we did all the data it's they're going to fall off trust us i mean what what would you expected mercedes to do yeah i mean we have to keep in mind that last year hamilton won the title in turkey by staying on a, a worn set of inters oh and i definitely remember that yeah yeah so i would have imagined that they would have talked about the different scenarios with the you know with the weather forecast and the and they know that the track doesn't dry that quickly um so you would hope that they'd have a pretty clear understanding of what they want to try and do 
before they get to that stage. And it does seem that they they get caught between two stalls, one where they have a lot of data and they're trying to call them in, the other they're trying to utilise um, you know, the, all the experience that Hamilton has as a seven-time world champion. So it just, it, yeah, something's not quite right, is there? And, and I feel that given how close the championship is and given how well he'd done, you know, you've got to give Hamilton and Carlos a lot of credit. Not only did they not have the benefit of DRS, but, you know, although there wasn't a dry line, there was certainly a drier line. And so the passing had to be done offline where the track was was definitely, you know, more wet. And they, they made a lot of good passes um, and deserved to, to make progress. So he'd done all the hard work, really. The back half of the race should have been, should have been easy, uh, relatively speaking, uh, to, to, to then start to, in clear air, now you've got past the slower cars, to utilise the inherent pace advantage and, you know, try and get one or two more places. Um, and they just didn't, they just didn't get it right at all, did they? And it's, it's, uh, you can understand why Verstappen was overjoyed. I mean, what a result, Red Bull second and third, when they clearly are a fair bit slower at, at, that, uh, at that track. I mean, they're having a bit of luck, Red Bull, at this point. I mean, Mercedes have shown a car advantage in multiple <laughs> races, and they haven't really been able to, to make hay. You know, they couldn't really use it... Uh, uh, the car advantage in in Italy because of you know a variety of reasons um, in in Russia Max got lucky with the rain um, that that saved him from a bigger points deficit to Hamilton and again here in Turkey Mercedes's car advantage is, I mean it worked for Bottas but it certainly didn't really help Hamilton um, so yeah it's a frustrating weekend for them uh, for Mercedes and and a, and a very happy weekend for Red Bull. I think the to move on from the tire decision for a minute. I mean, you know, fundamentally, Red Bull seem more concerned that their pace advantage seems to have dissipated. I mean, if this trend continues, they're going to struggle yeah. to to win the championship. They need to find some more pace in in their chassis, and you know, we're coming to some tracks that certainly might favour them. But uh, I think everyone was surprised. Nobody really knew who was going to have the advantage in Turkey. And most people were surprised that it was Mercedes and so decisively. I don't think anyone expected there to be a three-tenths difference between uh, Lewis and Max at this track. Well, and and let's go on to slightly happier news here, Uh, just generally speaking, more positive news. And here's – there is something to be said because despite what you just said about Red Bull's strategy over Mercedes, Mercedes did outscore Red Bull 36 points compared to 33. Not a lot. But uh, Mercedes is stretching the constructors lead uh, just a little bit. Now it's at 36 points, if my math skills are serving me correctly. And considering all the things we just went about went on about with their Mercedes star drivers performance versus uh, Red Bull star drivers performance, you know, the fact that Mercedes is pulling ahead in constructors is fascinating. And that's because Valtteri Botas just had a, a, a wonderful weekend, a dominant performance, seemed to be in control, lap one through 58, and put on just a great, great show. Absolutely. Yeah, he was uh, untouchable, really, in the race. Completely controlled it, and, um, and you know, probably one of his best drives in a Mercedes, and, you know, des- thoroughly deserved the win. Um, yep. His first win and, in over a year, he now has 10 even, which is a lovely number. Yeah, and Verstappen never had a look in. I mean, Verstappen had a pretty anonymous weekend. I mean, he did a good, solid job um, with what he had. Uh, you know, essentially second on the grid and, and drove very comfortably. I didn't see any mistakes from him at all. Um, uh, but, but, you know, he finished 15 seconds behind Botas, which is, you yeah. know, in a normal situation, if Hamilton had led from pole, how much would he have won by? You know, you would have think he'd probably be another five, ten seconds down the road from, from Valtteri. But... Um, it, yeah, it, it was, um, it, yeah, really good effort. And, and, you know, that helped Hamilton for sure. Because if Verstappen had somehow managed to win, then that would have been, you know, another seven points um, yeah, to the potentially good of the championship. Eight, potentially That's eight, right. because I think Botas had a, a bit of an advantage with that clear track to run fastest laps. Maybe maybe anyone could have gotten it towards the top, but 
uh, seemed like it was just Valtteri's day for everything because Valtteri did get the point for fastest lap in addition to the race win. So, uh, and his fastest lap, him. his fastest lap was massively quicker than anybody else's. He got into the one thirties. I think only one other driver got into the anywhere near that. Uh, I think the second fastest driver was in the thirty ones, and everyone else, huge gag well, well, drivers, were in the thirty twos. So Botas did a thirty point four. Second yeah. fastest lap, Carlos Sainz, 31.9. So a second yeah. and a half. And <laughs> Botas's lap was the last lap of the race. So I think the track was starting to dry a little bit. And for whatever reason, Botas had the ability and the hybrid battery charge and everything else to put together a fastest lap run at the end. And <laughs> clearly served him well. Yeah. Uh, so um, very strong weekend. And, and I think... And you could argue that the number two drivers for both Mercedes and Red Bull had, you know, one of their best performances in, a, in a, quite a while. Because, as I mentioned earlier, Perez helped to impede Hamilton and, and successfully fended him off, which, which definitely helped Red Bull's cause as well. So, uh, and Horner has been particularly vocal saying that, you know, Perez is every bit a stronger racer as Verstappen, which is high praise indeed. So, um, yeah, both of them who, they, you know, they've been, they've gone missing a few weekends at this season, but they were, they were front and present at this one. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out amongst all four of them over the last six rounds of the championship. Definitely well, they could swing it one way or another. Absolutely they could, yeah. And Botas has proven, just, you know, objectively speaking, the stronger of the two. Botas now is third in the championship fairly comfortably. 177 points compared to Lando Norris's 145, and he's another 10 clear of Sergio Perez, who has 135 in fifth. But you know, obviously, uh, there's still a lot of um, a lot of racing to go where that could still shift around, and who knows, McLaren could be really strong again in Austin, for example. Um, there's some other parts of the race though that I want to get to before we before we leave it, and that was uh, Pierre Gasly v. Fernando Alonso on lap one, right at the opening. I have to say, I was really kind of frustrated that uh, Gasly got the penalty. They were kind of, I think I think that was either turn one or turn two, lap one. Pierre Gasly was in the middle of a three-wide entry into that corner in the wet. And uh, he got the penalty for hitting Alonso and having him spin off. What did, what did you make of that incident? Yeah, I agree with you. So we, this is the exit of turn one going into turn two. You're three wide. Alonso's on the outside of the corner, obviously trying to trying to make sure he can he can stay on the track to make the next right. Well, and um, Alonso's and made so many great outside moves on lap one this season. So that's good right. place for him and generally. He was ahead. His uh, rear left got tagged by Gasly's front right, but. But Gasly didn't have much room to go to the left because, as you mentioned, there was another car. I don't remember who it was on the inside. I think it was Perez. Okay. So, yeah, it was. I think, to me, that should have just been a racing incident. Uh, it seems a bit harsh to administer a, a five-second penalty. I mean, to be fair, I don't think it really hurt Gasly's race. I mean, he ended up sixth. I don't think he would have necessarily come much higher uh, without that penalty. Yeah, uh, whereas, but it's the principle of the thing, Chris. <laughs> come on. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, in all seriousness, though, it, you're you're probably right that it, it's not like Gasly had a podium waiting for him, and then this happened or anything like that. And ironically enough, Alonso ended up getting a five second penalty himself for tagging. I think it was Mick Schumacher later in the lap. But yeah. um, it it's just one of those things. It's like, well, hold on, it, we have to be. Race control has to be consistent in their rulings, and this one seems like you want to you want to lean towards racing incident. You don't want to lean towards penalty, right? Like you want to default to racing incident unless the evidence is overwhelming to go a different direction. And to me, this was very fuzzy. And if you're in the middle of going three wide on a wet track on lap one, almost by default. There's not that much the guy in the middle could have done. I mean, his options were already extremely constrained. So that that part of it was really frustrating to me. It seemed, I, as soon as I saw a different angle and saw it was three wide, it was like, oh, well, that's a racing incident. And then they got the penalty, you know, a couple laps later. I, I think that 
the, the penalties, looking from the outside, obviously we don't know exactly everything that the stewards discuss, but the, the penalty appears to be handed out not so much of the incident, but the consequences. So you look at, uh, you look at, you know, it, now Alonso goes from his starting position of sixth. He was ahead of Gasly and Perez, uh, so probably up to fifth at that stage, uh, at least. So he's had a good start, converted his qualifying well, and now he's back battling, you know, Mick Schumacher in, you know, 14th or 15th place. That's, that's, you don't want to encourage that type of tagging, do you, to, to get opponents out of the way, even if it is a racing incident. You know, you could get, you know, we end up sort of tin top style, you know, intentional contact to get rid of your opponents. We don't, we don't want to get there in the sport, but I agree with you. I mean, there's a fine line between racing incident and intentional nudging to, to get someone out of your way. Um, I, it, it does seem it does seem that I think if Alonso had somehow made it through that uh, turn two, still in a reasonable place, maybe having just lost one or two places, then maybe maybe they would have thought differently. I don't know that for a fact, but that's that's one thing I'm I'm, I'm wondering if if plays into their minds when they hand out penalties. Carlos Sainz finished eighth at the end, one driver of the day. Uh, do you think that was the? Do you think he deserved it? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, he did the most on-track passes, didn't he? I mean, he was, you know, he, he fought really, really hard um, all the way up from, from 19th on the grid uh, to finish 8th. Strong, strong weekend. I mean, to finish right behind Norris in a McLaren, starting from the back, that's a good effort. And as I said, no DRS help, um, tricky conditions throughout. Yeah, definitely. Strong, strong weekend uh, from Carlos. Um, I totally agree with you. And... Carlos Sainz now has 116.5 points to be six in the Drivers' Championship ahead of Charles Leclerc by half a point, who is in seventh with 116. Carlos Sainz is now the lead Ferrari driver. It is official. There's a new number one. Everything has to shift around now. Going back to the penalty discussion for a second. Um, really? A really? You're going to totally ignore that? Come on! <laughs> Oh man, that was worse than your moments of silence. Oh man. Sorry, just I'm still thinking about penalties. Uh, twist the knife out, man. Jeez. Okay, penalties. Great. Carlos Sainz is great. Carlos Sainz fan club. Great interview with Emanuele Piro, who was an ex oh, the Beyond the Formula Grid. One driver. Yeah, exactly. So a good interview if you can catch that with him. I, They're talking about I, his. Can I just say real quick? So. Uh, Emmanuel Perot, he's been uh, tied with Lamborghini for a little while now, and I've I've met him on a couple of occasions, and he's just he's also just a really kind, wonderful man. I have to say, just I've met him personally, and he's just a very he's just a lovely human being. Well, that comes across in the interview, honestly. I've never really heard him speak very much because when he was in Formula One, he wasn't in the best of cars, and you didn't really get to hear him very much. And, and this is also quite a long time ago. Um, we're talking back in the nineties. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's more recently, he was a famous, he was part of the R8 dominant teams with Audi. Yeah. Um, a lot of success. In the That's yeah. right. That's right. Um, but yeah, he, lovely interview. He's got a very interesting look on life and, uh, some, some fascinating things to say, but one thing that came across, cause he was involved, uh, as part of the stewards team when we had the Hamilton Vettel incident at Canada in 2019, where Vettel... Oh, uh, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Vettel cut the chicane, um, managed to keep Hamilton behind him and got a penalty that resulted in Hamilton winning the race. And a lot of people were unhappy about that. And I guess he got a lot of grief for it. But he, he Really? I don't remember about... that. I thought Vettel was very sanguine about that whole thing. <laughs> yeah, um, good. I'm glad you laughed at that one. Yeah, he was, he was quite cross. Um, you know, he talks about how much he thinks about it, how much he sweats the details and how much he wants to get the decisions right. And uh, I know they have a rotating uh, steward panel, but it was good to hear that, you know, he's not there just sort of blowing off incidents or handing handing out penalties willy-nilly. When, when he's involved, it sounds like he really sweats the details and 
thinks about you know what he would have done in that situation and what he thinks is fair and tries to look at all perspectives so I thought that was quite heartening actually and gave me a bit more confidence in the stewards that are are uh, making these decisions yes yes uh, well that that's nice to hear I have not listened to that beyond the grid yet and I'm looking forward to doing so but I I, I have I've I have toasted an April spritz with uh, Emmanuel Perot in the past and uh, yeah I, I I'll just you know, just say one more time. He's just a lovely, lovely human being. So uh, that that's cool to hear that insight, Chris. So six races to go. Let's look at the championship battles that are that are raging. Obviously, we we've got the obvious one: Verstappen and Hamilton, six points between them. That's basically the square root of nothing. So uh, we'll move on from that. Nor- <laughs> <laughs> Norris and Perez. That hurts me. That hurts me to hear you say that. It's the square root of like two point six six seven or so. <laughs> Or, I mean, yeah, 2.667 is the square root of six, I think. Okay. Uh, So Norris and Perez, just 10 points separating them, uh, battling over fourth. Uh, So um, that's going to be interesting to see if Perez can actually make use of his car. Do you think think Botas is going to hold on to the third place? Yeah, he's got 32 points on Norris. I think he's he's pretty much guaranteed third place in the championship. I think it's a battle for... Ooh, for knock fourth. on wood. Everyone around that <laughs> order. That's ooh, that's dicey. That's dicey, Chris. Yeah, I'm, I, so my assumption is Norris and Perez battling for fourth. And then we've got a great inter-Ferrari team battle of Saints and Leclerc for uh, effectively sixth place. So there's half, half a point, a between point them. separating them. Yeah, yeah. Pretty crazy. So that that'll be uh, you know if Carlos can beat Charles in his first season at Ferrari, that's going to be that's big news. I think very big news. Well, we've said it. Uh, I've said it certainly, and you've agreed at the very least. Uh, you know, Carlos is he's very good. He flies under the radar, but just he's very good at pounding away and just having good, consistent results, constantly improving. So, you know, I think he's underrated. Truthfully, even though he's been he's had a good career, I I think he's underrated. I think in the top trumps of Formula One drivers, you have to put Carlos ahead of Daniel Ricciardo, based on this season's performance and their you know their relative pace. How about that? Yeah, because obviously Carlos and Lando were evenly matched in their seasons at McLaren together, and Lando's just blowing uh, Danny away this year. Well, hold on, uh, Daniel Ricciardo has a race win. Lando Norris does not. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, but uh, speaking of Carlos and Lando and those, I do, if there's more you want to say about drivers, we'll get back to it. But seven and a half points between Ferrari and McLaren in the Constructors' Championship. That's, yeah. that's brewing to be really something as well because third in the Constructors' Championship is, you know, kind of the unofficial best of the rest. And it is very clearly between... Mercedes and Ferrari. Uh, Alpine is in fifth, and they have less than half the points of Ferrari. So that's going to be the best of the rest of the rest um, championship for fifth because we've got uh, 12 points between Alpine and AlphaTauri Honda, and then um, uh, Aston Martin's a bit farther behind in seventh. So I'm quite interested to see if Mercedes, McLaren Mercedes can finish third in the championship. That would really be something. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating battle, and you know it's hard, really hard to call because, as we said, Ferrari were very strong in Turkey, but prior to that, McLaren was on a real roll, very very strong in both Russia and, and Italy, so very much track dependent performance. But uh, who knows how it's going to play out? So lots of great battles, uh, and of course, you know the constructors' championship itself is far from decided. Although it's a thirty point thirty six point lead for Mercedes over Red Bull. Uh, that can, you know, with a disastrous race, that can swing quite quickly as well. So some some good good fights up and down the grid for sure. And uh, for us, for this side of the pond, folks, we do have uh, our North American wing coming up because it's the next race is on the 24th of October and it is the United States Grand Prix. USA! USA! And then just a short time after that, we head down south the border and have the Mexican Grand Prix. So... Uh, just uh, a lot of a lot of good racing uh, in our time zone coming up, or there or thereabouts in terms of time. Yeah, zone. Brazil behind Mexico as well. So three in the in the Americas on the trot. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Are you can, going to cannot, Cota? Cannot forget South America, can we? Are you going to Austin for this year's race? 
Uh, extremely unlikely. I've not 100% ruled it out, but I have 95% ruled it out. So <laughs> it's there is uh, there is uh, plenty of activity going on with the automotive manufacturers, and that would be my link to go. But uh, yeah, it's it's going to be really tough. But yeah, we've got we've got uh, United States um, October 24th. Then we have Mexico November 7th, and then we have Brazil. Just a few days later, well, a week later, November 14th. Right. And then yeah. we go to the Middle East to have some fun in the desert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that that there's going to be some interesting racing going on there. And then by then, of course, the championship will be red hot as likely as anything. And, I mean, we will talk about what to expect a little bit more at the United States Grand Prix in a bit more detail next week because uh, the IndyCar season is over. You know, the racing season championships are starting to close out you know imsa has um still has petit lamar in november but you know the um indycar season is over so it's going to be a bit more formula one focused from here to the end of the year so that's uh what we've got coming but that also means that it is a great time to talk about my latest youtube video oh yes and i drove many things between uh, the last podcast and this one my latest video is on the Honda Civic hatchback, sir. And uh, just two hours prior to that, I had another video on the Toyota Tundra. And uh, there's just there's there's a lot of news about Toyota and that third generation truck coming. But this is the hatchback version of the Honda Civic, which is now in its 11th generation. And this is the sportier of the two base cars. So the sedan is got one setup, and the hatchback is a bit sportier than that. Why would you buy anything other than the hatchback Civic? Well, ask that to over whatever it is, 70% of Americans that get SUVs. Hatchbacks um, are dying because there's taller hatchbacks that are heavier and slower that you can buy. But I've never understood the historical fascination with buying the sedan or the saloon version here of cars that everywhere else, everyone buys the hatchback version. No one buys the, the sedan Civic in the rest of the world, do they? Maybe in China. Maybe China and the U.S. They're the uh, the outliers. But everyone else buys the hatchback, I think. Is that so? I mean, I mean I'd certainly, I, I, I get your point. But, you know, there's still plenty of uh, little compact coupes running around. Compact sedans. Come on. They're all over the place. France has plenty of their own versions. You know, France has plenty of lovely hatchbacks. I'm not trying to say France are anti-hatchback. But there's plenty of people that go for the small coupe or sedan version of things. No, no, they don't even sell it in Europe. It's just hatchback only. They, so in Europe, they sell hatchback and the, the wagon of these vehicles. Here, they sell the hatchback and the sedan. It's, yeah, it's, but isn't it's it powered always... by like a two-cylinder diesel engine in Europe or something like that? I mean, <laughs> doesn't it make 15 horsepower and run to, you know, 1,400 RPM or something? No, I mean, forget the powertrain. We're just talking about body oh, style oh, preferences. Oh, blimey, you got the 800cc. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's spot uh, on English accent comes back. So, so what I've figured out is that Americans in general have now realized how useful a hatchback is, but have just accepted it in the SUV form. Yeah, well, the hatchback and, is still alive and well under the Honda roof anyway. It's a bit of a shame. You know, the, I, we talked about it not long ago. The Volkswagen Taos is effectively the replacement for the Volkswagen Golf here in the United States, per your point precisely, sadly. But the Civic Hatchback is still around and in the U.S., and uh, the Civic Hatchback still has an available six-speed manual transmission. Oh, so, I was just going to ask you. Good. Did you drive that yeah, one? I did. I did not. My video, my the car that I had to make a video with is uh, CBT, but I did get a chance to drive the manual, and I do talk about the manual in that video because the manual is quite good. It's not Honda S2000 good, but it is a very, very good manual transmission and it really does liven up the Civic because and you'll appreciate this, at least I hope you do, the manual transmission is 66 pounds lighter than the CVT and that is, this is obviously a transversely mounted uh, engine, so that is 66 pounds off the nose of the car. You get uh, 59.1% of the weight on the front axle instead of 60.2% on the front axle with the manual. So you have better front-to-rear chassis balance and fully linear power delivery, 
and obviously full control of when and how you shift. So it, it well, and, it's and truly it's a great experience. It's probably a sweet box as well. I mean, Honda always do nice, nice clutch and gearboxes, don't they? So absolutely, probably yeah. nice to drive, probably cheaper. And uh, yeah, yeah, why would well, you buy the, the CVT? cheaper part? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, cheaper part. Uh, no. It, the, the, so the manual transmission is a no-cost option, um, and the manual transmission is available on two of the four trims. So there's the Sport and the Sport Touring. That's where you can get the manual. So you can get the manual with either engine, the 2-liter naturally aspirated or the 1.5-liter turbo engine. That's interesting. I know their biggest competitor, which is the Toyota Corolla, the manual transmission is cheaper. And I know that because I'm cooking up a dastardly plan to make my daughter drive a manual car for her first <laughs> What's dastardly about that? I'd say that's angelic. I mean... To me, I had to learn with a manual. In, in the UK, if you take your test in an auto, you're only licensed to drive autom- uh, you know, automatic transmission cars. So you know, you, I think it's still worthwhile learning how to drive a manual. You, get, you learn so much more mechanical sympathy, and, and there's a joy to it, fundamentally. Oh, and it, it, the level of engagement is, is just, it, just higher. You, you have to pay more attention because you're doing more. Yeah, so, so we're plotting to give her a manual car as her first car and um uh, so yeah i've already been checking out who still does manuals and uh, you're devious you're one. devious so and so well honda definitely still does and it is a lovely lovely car um, um and i do want to say my toyota tundra video it's it's another walk around of the chassis and it this time around is just a bare chassis so you the the fully boxed frame is fully exposed and we can talk a bit more about the hybrid powertrain because this was a hybrid powertrain in this bare chassis and uh, there were a lot of really interesting um, insights that i had two toyota engineers to speak with this time uh, about the toyota tundra so there was a lot to learn there Um, and then the honda civic was just a lot of fun to drive but we'll leave it there for now i want to thank you for listening Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com, though that rarely happens, I must admit. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Oh, Chris, we did it again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Robin. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye.